2: is happening it's not much of an intro but you know i do what i can when i can anyway hope everyone's doing all right this is the x-man podcast i'm your host doc coil and you know it's been quite a few weeks i'm in the midst excuse me i'm adjusting my volume here so i can hear what i'm saying I'm, you know, I'm in the midst of a singer search with the rest of my band, and that is uh, quite an undertaking, but feeling pretty good. It The stress levels were very high at the, at the beginning. Things are subsiding. Finding a lot of strength through positive energy, collective solidarity, and just hard work. That's what it's all about. You, There's no substitute for hard work. And yeah, that's mainly what I've been dealing with, but I'm feeling a nice little... I don't know. I'm f- feeling a lot of great positive en- energy out there, and that's very exciting for me. Uh, I'm not. I I wasn't gonna do much of a uh, <laughs> of a monologue, but I have something I kind of just want to talk about, and we'll, we'll 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 see where it goes. Let's we'll see how how crazy this this is. But um, so I got into it with with my, my homie Phil Labonte from All That Remains on on the old Twitter, and I'm just gonna. Just explain this and i love phil and we get into it this this you know this got a little more heated than usual <laughs> but at least want to talk about it so he did this post on uh twitter and he goes and he's responding to someone else and he goes cancel your subscription to the new york times because it's not a newspaper it's a trash propaganda rag and i responded to him nah man you are dead wrong on this get it right and he's like, I'm comfortable with disagreements. We can keep statements like, get it right to yourself. So he was kind of coming at me. He don't like that shit. And, uh, and so then I quote tweeted him and I go, I love Phil, but don't take his advice. The only thing worse than an imperfect journalistic apparatus is the ab- absence of any journalistic apparatus. These organizations need our support to invest in the ability to make their best effort to investigate what is actually happening. You know, and I got a lot of... You know, some people agreeing with me so, and I got a lot of pushback, you know, and I think it's very reflective of where we're at. So the initial statement, right, that he said that it's a, it's basically saying, you know, just parroting a Donald Trump, right? It's, it's fake news. It's the enemy of the people, whatever. And that's obviously those are hyperbolic statements, but I don't think, I don't even think Phil believes that, right? Right. But I think it's just where we're at as a reflection of public trust. And what we've done is we've politicized these things. And I know I was trying to say now I was gonna try and talk less about politics, but I think even though politics is involved, this is beyond politics. This is actually about how do we discern what's real and what isn't? That we're kind of having a war about that. Like what is a fact? What is a knowable thing, right? People kind of have their own, they're entitled to their own narratives about how things are. And when I say I don't think he really believes that, it's that, so I'll give you an example. Let's just go, I'm going to go to NewYorkTimes.com. Let's see what's on the front page. Let's see the propaganda. So here's, um, so the first, first <laughs> article is it McConnell, Mitch McConnell that is of the Senate, drops filibuster demand, letting Democrats assume full power. Now, if this is a fake news organization, will we assume that that's not happening? Is that, did he not drop the demand? So let's look down, okay. Trump's ban on transgender troops and military is reversed. Are we If it's fake news, are we to suspect that that didn't actually happen, that Biden really didn't reverse it, right? Biden sets in motion plan to ban new oil and gas drilling on federal land. Did that not happen? Do you see where I'm going with this? What I'm saying is, What I think he really means is he doesn't like the opinion section of the newspaper. He disagrees with their worldview. And that's a dumb reason (laughs) to say that it's fake news. Even I can understand the difference between the news part of Fox news and the opinion part of Fox news. That's why the news department, Called the election, called Arizona for Biden, the night of, because they're a news organization, and because real news organizations actually have to back up what they're saying with facts. That's why articles they ran, like uh, Fox News ran an article about a story on Seth Rich, basically you know running a conspiracy story. It's because they got sued by the family, and it turns out they didn't have. They couldn't back it up. They had to retract the story. So, but it's this idea that there's been a collective effort to, to destroy trust in institutions. And by the way, this goes left and right, right? So if I'm on the right, I go, well, I don't, I don't pay attention to the mainstream media, right? New York times, Washington Post, CNN, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to say those organizations don't leave lean left. That would be a lie. Right. But they're just discounting it all together. And that, that just flatly logically doesn't make sense, right? If the New York Times weather section says it's going to rain today, is that fake news? If they give you the score to the Super Bowl, is the score wrong? Do you see where I'm going here? It's that people have kind of taken these things to a level of not really even believing what they're saying. It's just kind of saying everything's crazy and I can't believe anything, so... The people that kind of disagree with me, I'm just not going to take them seriously, and it's a way. So if they if they give you information that is inconvenient to your worldview, you can discard it. And I and that goes both ways, right? So I'll give you a, a, an inverse example. So over the summer we had the big protest movement, and it was a cab, right? All cops are bastards, and everyone's like, defund the police, get rid of police, right? Now the whole point of that is to essentially say we don't we don't have trust in that institution in the policing institution anymore so they need to be downsized they need to be have power removed right now we can have that conversation but we can definitely say the police as a as an institution has been has lost trust community trust right so when you start doing that systematically with all these whether if it, whether it's news media whether it's the police, whether it's uh, the government, just existing in general, taxes, right? Taxes are theft. It's like, are, are they Are they really theft? If you thought they were theft, would you just go along with it? No, you're just saying that, you're just mad. You just hate taxes. No one likes taxes, they're whack, right? But you don't really mean that. You don't really mean it's a propaganda rag. You're just like saying, I don't like them. And my general point was, we need a news media. We need reporters out there working, doing stories. And it's not supposed to be perfect. It's not gonna be perfect, it's people. People are like, I want an unbiased news. I'm like, who who, who the, f- what What you gonna get, the Terminator <laughs> to, to, to do the news? <laughs> and by the way, so if, if you get the Terminator to report the news, a person has to program them. There's no such thing as Bias, and then I'll ask people. I'm like, oh, so you don't trust any of the mainstream news organizations? They're like, nope. I'm like, so where do you get news from? And then they'll they'll mention like a few single reporters or people. So I'm like, so you're saying that whole entire organization is biased, but that one person that you follow is not? Do do, do, do you see do you see that the lack of logic here, you know? And I think it's because of this, so people can just, like I said, choose their own adventure. They can just decide. You know what, I, I like this reality where I'm always right and all the shit that I like is, is the right way. And it's like, no, 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 no. Inconvenient truths are the best, are your best friend because it helps you evolve the way you see the world. You get new information and it flies in your face. You're like, oh, I thought it was like this. Oh, no, no, no. Now I have a more well-rounded understanding of things, right? And it doesn't mean the news media shouldn't be criticized. It doesn't mean that it's perfect or great It means it's the best we got for now. And we'll, let's try and hold them accountable. Let's try and have better news. But we can't do that if we don't invest in it. You know, it's like how it costs money to send reporters into war zones to do reporting. It costs money to do these long-term big stories, you know, like, you know, the Panama papers and stuff like that, that, that that takes investment and you want to get really smart, capable people. So you have to pay them. So people want good news and they don't want to pay for it. It's the same thing with cops, right? Or education, right? We want good education, but we don't want to pay for it. So we, at some point we have to decide what's real and what's not just because I don't like their opinion section. I'm not going to listen to them. Come on. And, And Phil, I know we'll have this conversation. I love Phil, but I do think he gets a little too deep into hyperbole and the things that are just like, yeah, it gets a lot of likes. It gets a lot of retweets. Cause it sounds, we're not gonna take it, but <laughs> you know, I don't know. So hopefully that made, made some kind of sense, but I, I felt it was worth bringing up on the show guys. All right. Guys and gals, all the people, all the people. All right. We have a show sponsor. And this band actually, it's their second appearance on the podcast, I believe. They're a band called Heartsick. Good people. And they're from Lansing, Michigan. And we're going to play a track entitled Thrill of the Hunt. Check it out. Stay.
0: Trapped in this house I feel with duct tape on
2: your mouth I feel with a knife in your spouse You can crawl for the door No use really locking it now Begging, pleading I'm not hearing you out I wrote your soul Till I break you all the way down Hands
0: around your throat Cause I'm taking you out
2: So that was heartsick with their track, Thrill of the Hunt. I thought that was cool. Very like different, new school vibe. Almost, you know, getting some of that newer type of weird hip hop that's going on. I thought that was cool because some of the other stuff is a lot heavier, I guess, traditional metal chord, but it's, you know, it's good to mix it up. Very, very moody song. And the sponsorship was actually set up through their label, God Size Records. So definitely... Check them out. Go over to the website, which is GodSizeRex, dot Uh, We had another band, Mantra of Morta, was also on that same label. But yeah, uh, this band has been around, Heart Sick has been around for 10 years. They were called No Life before beforehand, and they have a few records out. And essentially they're, for when it seems like, I don't know if they're gonna have an album out in 2021, but they're going to be releasing different content, I guess, songs and singles. You know, people are mixing it up now. It's not just albums and EPs. You know, you got to try different things. I think that's really cool. But they have a track coming out with Corey Lowry uh, of Stuck Mojo fame. He's been in so many different bands. I think he's in Seether currently. And Jared Gomez, singer from Head PE, is doing a track with them. And they have a tour coming up in October with Combi Christ, King 810, i have all the faith in the world that all those tours will happen by that time so we're looking forward to that if you want to check them out please head over to heartsickband.bandcamp.com check them out they have a few albums like i said some good stuff we also have we have two sponsors this week hopefully you know hope i'm not weighing you guys down with all these all these jams but you know we get you know over here on the x-men we got to support these these new bands, even bands that are, you know, they've been around for a minute, but I I appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate you guys always supporting the bands that I play on the show and checking them out because they've, we've gotten so many, uh, we've gotten so many great, a lot of great feedback. Bands tell me that you guys go and you check out their page and they get a lot of, get a lot of uh, traffic over there. And that's, that's amazing. So we're going to play a band from New York city, a band I've seen, I've seen this band a few times and they're called 10 Ton Mojo, some real, real burly rock and roll here. And we're going to play a track entitled Carmelita. Check it
0: out. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce.
1: And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. and listen to something about the Beatles now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The number you have reached is one hundred point seven WMMs. It wasn't just a radio station; it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Right? Get down. Get down. Of the, buzzard.
1: the rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles The Wrath of the Buzzard. PROH Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. <laughs>
2: So that was Carmelita by Ten Ton Mojo, and that was a feel-good rocking ass song. That's some good shit right there. I very much thoroughly enjoyed that. Love that. That singer can can really wail. So that was Mixed by Max Norman, producer Max Norman, who produced two of my favorite records of all time, Megadeth, Countdown to Extinction, and Euthanasia. I'm pretty sure he did the one after that, too. <laughs> but yeah that that was a kick-ass song and and it sounds like i'm not alone in this because they were named easily the best band in new york city by the Aquarian weekly weekly and they have provided support for bands like super suckers kicks molly hatchet johnny five the list goes on and on and on they played at the viper room gramercy theater all over the other place, and I'd, like I like said I've seen these guys multiple times, and every time they play New York, they they pack it out, they rock the house, and I'm you know I'm a I'm a rock and roll guy, so I I I love it. And uh, if you want to support the band, go over to their website 10tonmojo.com, and they're also doing a couple live streams coming up on the thirtieth and thirty first. But the thirty first, they're doing it to help support the rock venue in New York City, Arlene's Grocery. They're doing a fundraiser. So please go over to their, facebook.com, their Facebook page, facebook.com backslash 10 ton mojo. And thank you so much to them for supporting the show. Check them out. They kick ass. All right. If you want to support the show and sponsor it, drop me an email at the X-Men podcast at gmail.com or drop in the DMs. All right, guys. It's a lot of you know. It's a lot of pre pre show more than more than usual, but that's how it goes down sometimes. My apologies. We have a great guest this week, a friend of mine that goes back to my days in New York City. Speaking of New York City, and you may know her from the Netflix television show Orange Is the New Black. You might know her from singing with Brujeria. You might know her from her own band, Alekeen's Gun. But she is someone that really has been just a, an inspiration to me to see someone come out of the same grimy dirty low to the ground scene <laughs> like it is in, in 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 New York and gone on to just really to tremendous heights and and you know and I've been trying to get on the show forever so I'm glad it finally worked out. I do have to say there is some you might notice a shift in the sound <laughs> because I had a problem with my mic and I had to switch. Pretty pretty early on, so I excuse the issues with the technical problems. I've uh because of the new operating systems, my 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 one interface has stopped working. So, Apogee, you sons of bitches, get your get your shit together. But yeah, without without a further ado, listen. This is this is all I can say is this. She's the best, and I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this. So please check out my conversation with the amazing talented. And fierce as fuck, Jessica Pimentel. <laughs> Listen, you want to, if you want to represent, do you? My girlfriend stole my, my my Duff's hoodie, so she's doing all the all the representing around here.
3: <laughs> that's
0: awesome.
3: That's funny. What's going on? How yeah, you doing? That's- doing well it's been a very crazy day it was a lot of uh zoom auditions which is like the new thing now and it's yeah. taken already awkward situation of auditioning and make it even more awkward by like i'm trying to look at you but but like you're here but and <laughs> nerves and things always go wrong and you know like your, your man walks by and the, you know it's just like very awkward. And also, you know, no matter how many times you use Zoom or whatever, your your things always mess up at the last minute every single time.
2: How how dare Zoom come with their lack of ability to hold it down <laughs> for us? I mean, well, it's funny, we all have to I feel like back in the day we certain degrees we had to be specialists and now we have to be renaissance people where you have to everyone has to know how to kind of be on camera. You have to know how
3: to do everything now. Yeah.
2: You know how to edit video and record your own stuff and be and it's good. I think it's great to be self-reliant. But you know, I do another web show and it's not only because I'm used to doing the podcast for however many years, but when you add the element of video, you're actually I'm basically speaking to a camera and having to pay attention to these other types of quirks and and things. So and it's just, and it's the same thing, like if I'm if I'm just on the podcast, obviously I'm worried about what I'm saying. But if I had a YouTube show, then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a totally different skill set, and we kind of—I don't know—almost, exp- and, and that's probably an advantage the younger generation has, where they're used to doing vlogs and talking to the phone and being on camera and things like that.
3: Yeah, they're always doing that stuff, but we're we're asked to like be doing everything that people already have jobs for that they specialize in, you know, so. I had to learn about Hertz because I'm here in Sweden and the cameras run on different Hertz. The electricity is 50 Hertz. And, and if I have my lights up, I don't know, it's just a whole bunch of stupid little shit because we have these different like incandescent lights here. So if I put the incandescent lights, I turn green. If I put, you know, my, my house lights, I have to be by one spotlight and led lights. So then you have to go to the pro photos. Uh, (laughs) It's just too much. It's a lot.
2: I appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule
3: my busy schedule, your schedule has been nuts. My well, <laughs> schedule has been nuts.
2: I got a whole different kind of schedule right now. I'm I'm not sleeping. I'm not. I ain't got no time for anything. But enough about me. Uh, me. Are we started yet? <laughs> we slow. <laughs> we slow <laughs> with it. We don't worry about the stopping and starting. All I do is I say, "Welcome to the X Men." Okay. Because techni-
3: techni- I just did it, I just did a Mr. Rogers on camera. We can avoid that. Okay. <laughs> let's, oh. not, let's not show that, Mr. Rogers. No, right.
2: no, don't worry about it. You you tell me what to put in and take out. Um, all right. So I love having my friends on the show. That's really an excuse. This show is an excuse to just catch up with, with old friends. And you and I, we've known each other probably about 10 years.
3: Well, I mean, we've known each other peripherally maybe 20 years, but like didn't really get to hang out or know each other till like 10 years ago or yeah, I would say about then.
2: Yeah. And so what I remember about us getting to know each other, essentially I started working in New York at Duff's uh, Brooklyn Bar. And I was, it was interesting to kind of discover a whole new social circle when I was 30 years old and really discovering the entire New York rock scene, metal scene, hardcore scene, whatever you want to call it. And it was was really cool because coming from New Jersey, a lot of the scene I came up in, everyone was settling down, right? Having kids. Mm -hmm. But I I, I bring up this this idea of of coming up in the, the New York scene because it was very, how do I put it? It was very underground, right? It was very... All the mm-hmm. bars we were hanging in were dirty and dingy, and all the venues. You know, you were playing with your band, Alkeen's Gun. I I think you were playing bass for Desolate. Desolate. Yeah. So, I, and I would, you know, I'd see I'd see your bands all the time, and it was very low to the ground, right? Like a big show, in, in that scene would be like if four hundred people showed up or something, right? It was very yeah. You know, it was, it, it had that a was real, great. yeah. It was cool. It just had you kind of seen you go to a show. You go to bar. You seem to. We would seem to know everyone there. It was very. It was very communal, which I I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea you had this other career as an actress. I don't know if it was a mm-hmm. secret or.
3: For, it wasn't a secret. It was just I don't. One thing had nothing to do with the other. You know, yeah. I've been an actor for. For many years at that point, I went to a special high school, went to special junior high, went to performing arts. So as far as the acting thing was concerned, I guess it was nobody's business. I'm one of, the, you know, I didn't think it was anybody's business what I did on my my private time or my real time. You know, my bartending <laughs> job was to make ends meet. I wasn't a bartender by profession. I was a bartender by necessity.
2: As, as was I. the
3: bells as is, as, is, as are 90% of people in the service industry. Not everyone makes a career of being in the service industry. Some people do, they love it, it's wonderful. But most of us that do it are hustling. We're trying to get to our bigger goals. And for me, I've always been a musician since I was a small child. I studied music at a very early age. Um, and I also studied acting from a young age and I, I went to performing arts high school, which is LaGuardia fame. And from there, I went on to a, an acting conservatory and I got a degree in theater arts with a major in Shakespeare, you know? <laughs> and wow. uh, I got my, fir- my first uh, acting gig was in the mid nineties, a professional gig. And I, I felt that it was something I wanted to continue pursuing. So that's why I went to a, a more professional school to get my degree. Cause I wanted to absolutely do it my way. Cause it, for me, it wasn't about going to Hollywood and making it big. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the, the love of the art, the love of the craft, and uh, the love of what I was doing, especially Shakespeare. You're not going to get famous doing Shakespeare, you know that, but I just loved the, that that style, that poetry of it. And I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to devour it. When you're passionate about something, you you just... You, you do it because you can't do anything else. You know, you're not doing it because one day I'm going to be famous doing this. You just do it because you love it. Your, your soul yearns for it. And um, so I was happy to do that. And then after that, that's when I started auditioning for um, regular roles, TV roles, theater roles. And I and I was doing that fairly consistently. But unfortunately, when you're first starting out, you can't really make ends meet with those inconsistent Jobs. It's a very difficult profession, just like any freelance profession, but a little bit more difficult because you're competing in this, you know, very specific pool of people constantly. So, um, yeah, but little by little, you know, they say overnight success is 10 years in the making. So everyone thought that I had just made it overnight. It's like, no, I've been doing this for 25 years at this point now. So that's my overnight success story. It's like an iceberg,
2: right? (laughs) People only see the the tip of it but they don't they don't really see the the work and sacrifice for however many years before that of course same same thing for me how many people you know my level of notoriety from when you met me coming out of god forbid to
3: which which was huge for me yeah you know
2: but that's what i'm saying but
3: but people don't know god forbid and they don't know how much we love that band and what that meant to our scene our little you know our little scene and how huge we already felt you were You know, so where you ended up going was no surprise to anybody that knows you. It's very, very logical and well-deserved and well-deserved.
2: I I really, I really appreciate that. But one of the main reasons why I enjoy having guests like you on the show is that it's important to show that where you're at in one particular time and however blue collar that may be or how non-glamorous that may be it is all part of a path that being able to see yourself in one spot is not definitive, right? Like you have to have some kind of vision that says, okay, I can do this bigger thing that no one thinks I can do. And I love just seeing that process of people going from one level of stature and notoriety to another and showing that you're not defined by where you're at.
3: No, never. And, and, we all know you can be up here one day and then everything goes away the next day, which is, hello, <laughs> what we're talking about while we're here. There's no guarantee. So I hate people that say, you know, oh, I, oh, Jess, you made, you finally made it. There's no, to me, there's no make it. Make it implies a goal, a finish. Yeah. There's no finish. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. There's going to be times like now when there's nothing shooting. There are no jobs. There are no plays. There are no shows. There are no tours. Did I make it? If I, nothing's coming in, if I'm not working, if I'm home writing little little ditties on my on my guitar for myself and recording on my Audacity four track at home, <laughs> putting it on Bandcamp. did I make it? You know what what does make it mean? It, and and I hate when it implies that make it means a certain level of fame, because fame is useless. Fame is a is a a delusion, an illusion, a perception. Fame is not any, it doesn't have any kind of backing as to how successful you are. You can have very famous people that have nothing in their bank account, that have no respect, that have no clout, that they only have these numbers and this image, but they can't take care of themselves. And you have people that are unknown that are far more successful than every, everyone we know put together. Yeah. So that's, that's the delusion of fame, the illusion you know it's it's all smoke and mirrors and and not something that you should strive for if you especially if you're an artist
2: well can i have a, i have a question about that because your social media really took off after mm-hmm. art's of new black came out
3: yeah of course and i think
2: this is the one era where fame actually i think there is kind of a fame in the realm can, in terms of social media can be monetized hence the entire influencer culture and the idea that you have once you get to a certain number of people who are following you or checking out what you're doing you then have an ability to market products to them or
3: if that's what you want to do that's wonderful yeah
2: yeah. but i but i think what i'm saying is this is probably at any time in history this is the easiest way to actually change make fame actually something that is a career to a certain degree, because you can do that. I remember uh, the actress who played uh, Sansa Stark on oh, Game of yeah. Thrones. Mm-hmm. She has a really big following on social media. And she mentioned how she thinks it's kind of unfair that sometimes she'll get jobs because she has a big presence and people. You, they make a analysis into how they can market a film and say, okay, well that person if they post about the movie, they're getting mm-hmm. out to this many people. And so I, I do think, I, I hear what you're saying, where yes, there are plenty of people where fame is actually a burden and a mm-hmm. curse and, and and makes their life difficult. And there's not a monetary value to it to offset the trouble mm-hmm. that maybe the fame mm-hmm. is, is is worth. Or,
3: or sometimes people just, like you're saying, taking advantage of the fame, which is a, a wonderful thing. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, go ahead. No, no, no. no you didn't interrupt me. Uh, yeah, I mean, this. it's become part of the business. I mean, fame is a business now by selling your little this and selling your little that. Um, and it's wonderful on one hand, but it's it's also created this kind of monster where we all want to be celebrities, where everyone's a celebrity. The Truman Show. It is The Truman Show. And it's, it's great. I know that I've posted something from the heart or something that's true. Or something that's personal. When I lose about a thousand followers in the first, you know, five minutes or so, because I think from the beginning of this year I had all, like, I, I think I had seven hundred thousand, and now I have under five. And I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm being sincere.
2: <laughs> what do you think? I, what, were you, what were you saying? You think it was being divisive? Was it political stuff or things like that? I'm sorry. Well, what what do you think you were saying that was divisive? Was it political oh. things or?
3: No, I think uh, because uh, my notoriety came from this show, this particular show, our fans have an idea of who they think we are as actors. Or I'll speak for myself. I feel that a lot of the fans have an idea or, uh, yeah, an idea of who they think I am or who they want me to be. Mm. And that is not my character. I am not her. I don't speak like her. I don't walk like her. I don't talk like her. She inhabits this body with me sometimes, but we're not the same. Um, Or they want that red carpet glammed up, you know, perfection, which Mm. takes hours and a team of people to do, which is not every day. Or they want that stylized, life is beautiful, everything is perfect life. When we see the, look at me on the beach, having my poached eggs for brunch with my or they want this super cute you know brunch of my girls yeah the yeah. so cute and that has is not and has never been you know me long enough is not has never been me i may have my cute <laughs> moments from time to time but i am not a yeah
0: we'll,
2: ah, well know that a... i mean so you grew up in new york and yeah, I'm
3: from brooklyn we don't do new kidding. york
2: like you have So seeing you perform and just knowing your energy, you have what I would call alpha energy. (laughs) And and I'm not, and I'm saying that not to kind of genderize the word in terms of just, just... yeah. Like you just have a certain, like, I'll punch you in the dick kind of (laughs) like no one's fucking
3: find it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: No one's fucking with you. Uh, What do you think about, What is it about you that you think New York has kind of helped cultivate your personality or maybe your drive or even the artistic elements of going to that school and and all that? What what do you have to say about growing up in New York?
3: Well, growing up in New York, I mean, first of all, I'm a a child of immigrants. That in and of itself makes its own special and unique circumstances and problems. You're Dominican, right? Yeah, Dominican, my parents are both from the Dominican Republic. My mom came here when she was about 12 years old, 13 years old. So there's that, getting that from your mom, you know? Having to learn a new language, figuring out why it gets cold in November, you know? Uh, Maybe not having enough or, or, or not living the way you were living back home. So all these things that comes, that's before you're born. You already have situations before you're born that you're born into. But then when you think of New York City, you know, it's fast-paced. It's it's very mixed. Where I grew up was very mixed. It was rich people, poor people, white, black, Italian, Native American, Jewish, Spanish. Uh, every. The best country, thing
0: about New York. Every,
3: everybody was represented. Uh, all all ages all races all monetary standards of living you can be in the projects and two blocks is a million billion dollar house everyone rides
2: the subway and (laughs) Everyone everyone
3: rides the damn subway and and not only that we we because it's such a um densely populated city we are constantly competing you know we're competing for space on the train in the morning we're competing to get on the train we're competing for schools You know, the school I went to, we had to audition for my junior high. I had to audition for my high school. I had to audition, you know, so. So we're competing for those programs that are available. We're competing to get there first. We're competing for apartments. We're competing for constantly competition is in our blood and not just hustling. Hustling is in our blood no matter what you do. You hustle in New York. I, my little niece, you know, I said, oh, you know, darling, I haven't seen you in a while. When can I see you? And she pulls out her little book and says, well, I think I'm free on Thursday at 4 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and this was when she was five years old. She's telling me <laughs> that she's free on five, p- making appointments. You know, we already have that kind of naturally, no matter what you do, whether you're trying to be a business professional or an artist or, or, a, or a house mom or, or a stay-at-home parent. We are constantly hustling for for space, for time, for money, for the next job, for the next opportunity. So I think that's part of it as well. And growing up in the New York hardcore scene, I started going to hardcore shows when I was about 13, 14 years old. I think I went to my first hardcore show freshman year of high school. And uh, that energy, that's a boys club, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't coming there shopping, you know? I was coming there to enjoy the music. And part of enjoying the music was putting on big pants, putting on a big hoodie, covering your face and swinging a miss (laughs) whenever I had the chance. It was my release from a very frustrating, high-pressured life. I had a pretty high-pressured teenage years, you know, being someone who was hoping to become either a concert violinist or, or get into a conservatory of some sort, stay in the school that you're in. You have to keep a certain grade or keep certain promises, commitments, um, so that was my and only child. I didn't have an older, younger brother, sister to, to hang out with uh, pretty protective parents. <laughs> so stuck at home, just me and my music and practicing many hours a day, play, practicing violin many hours a day and going to your first hardcore show and feeling that energy, the crowd moving, fists flying, people screaming and grabbing the mic and just letting it all out release. And it was totally like safe. It was liberating. That's that something that absolutely transformed me. But to, to you know, you had to be in it to win it. So you couldn't be afraid to to take a punch or jump off a stage or defend yourself. So I think that was part of it as well.
2: So ever since I've known you, you always seem someone who has had a lot of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think clearly it takes a lot of confidence to, okay, I'm going to be a concert violinist at a certain age, or I'm going to go to this prestigious uh, art school and also get into all these different fields. Was that something your parents instilled in you? Or is that something that just comes naturally, you think?
3: Um, I mean, I have my insecurities. I have, especially if you're competing with people who are on a very high level, you're always going to think like, I could have played that better. I could have done that better. But that's also how a little bit of insecurity is good cuz you're you're kind of constantly challenge yourself that's
2: normal that's human do
3: better yeah that's normal and that's human it's the people that that don't look at themselves critically that i fear people that believe that they're perfect all the time people that act with that outward arrogance that that is not confidence arrogance and confidence kind of you know they look the same but the the, com- the components are different
2: yeah. I think, I think that happens often with people who are actually born more, they're just born with more natural gifts in a particular field and yeah. it can make them complacent because it comes so easy that mm-hmm. they fit that sometimes they can just kind of phone it in and they're still great. Yeah, And, and so you see this in sports a lot where you'll see like two players maybe drafted around the same time, but one clearly has more natural gifts, but they don't work as hard because everything came easy. And someone is not born with naturally as much, but because of that, they just worked so hard that eventually one can eclipse the other because ultimately it's a combination of both. And you need, and, and then when you get someone who does both like LeBron James, where it's like, he's yeah, it's this flawless athletic, Genius. Athlete, but he's also works harder than anyone, then you get that career, right? And so Uh I think sometimes natural talent can work against you because it's Mm -hmm. just, it's too too easy. And then like I said, maybe you're arrogant, so you don't critique your work enough or you don't say, okay, I can do this a little better. I can, where you can really get into the craft. But I think it's a balance between being able to be honest with yourself about Uh what's Uh not working And also, Mm -hmm. and then also saying, I'm good. I deserve to be here. I can, you know, we all have that kind of imposter syndrome from time to time. I
3: I am a huge sufferer of imposter syndrome. I cry sometimes because I, I don't think I can do anything. Like, oh, why am I here? I'm the fake. And then I see, you know, like 20 year olds writing a memoir. And I'm like you have. to live with your mom, like what the fuck are you writing a memoir about? And here I am, like someone asks me to speak, like you asked to interview me, and I'm like, what What does he want to talk to me about? Like I I don't know. I don't do anything. I I'm just me. I don't I don't know what to do. Sit on your hands, you know. That's, You're that's an
2: inspiration, cute. Jessica.
3: Thank you, Doc. To
2: me and the world. Okay. Um, <laughs> Doc. I will talk about violin for for a little bit. Because sure. I think I think we talked about this a little bit back in the, the day, but I don't really know a whole, a whole lot about it. Obviously, you started very early. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what is your, how do you kind of feel about it from a passion standpoint? Was that, you you said that was something you were, at some point, that was a career you were going to pursue? Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah, what happened? I mean, I, I got my violin when I was very young, kind of by accident. Someone had given it to my mom because they, they had a small little thing. They knew that she had a small child and that I might enjoy playing around with it as a toy. And I did. And I, I made a terrible noise on it for, for some time. And uh, my next door neighbor just happened to be a concert violinist and he couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and he knocked on the door. He's like, do you have a violin in here or are you torturing animals? You know, it's like, oh, I have a violin. He taught me how to tune it, taught me how to bow, the basics, but then he, unfortunately he moved away. So I wasn't able to take steady lessons for a long time, but for a little bit, I was getting just steady lessons from from him. And that was enough for me to kind of just play on my own. My my family's a musical family. So we always, I also had piano lessons. I had, I could read music already to some degree. Um, And then I just started learning things by ear. There was a record store around the corner and they would, every Saturday, just dump all the records that they didn't want. Me and my mom would go over there, pick through them. 99% were classical records. And I would start learning Bach and Mozart and Mendelssohn and and whatever I could by ear. I wasn't good, but I was trying, you know, eventually. And uh, long story short, someone heard me play. I got a, a scholarship to a local conservatory of music where I got Violin lessons, and I also played in a chamber orchestra and a full orchestra. Um, and that was something that I wanted to do, but I think that I overdid it because I wanted you to burnt out, I burnt out, and I burnt my physical body out. I wow. got tendonitis, I got arthritis, I got uh carpal tunnel, you know, rep- repetitive movement. I would practice sometimes eight hours a day wow. as if it were you know my only reason for living. I guess maybe it was at some at some point. Um, but that was a big, you know, big wake up call, big shock in the face, big smack in the face. When you dedicate basically your childhood, you give up your childhood, you don't go to sleepovers, you don't go, you know, to ice skating parties. Cause if you fall down, you might break your hand. Uh, you don't do all the little kid stuff only to, uh, to dedicate yourself to this and, and really love it. You know, sincerely, I didn't feel like I was missing out. Um, it's something that I loved, uh, only one day to not wake up and not be able to feel your hands yeah it's a pretty big uh, shocking moment and to not be able to play to have to constantly and it's still something that affects me to this day i've had to come to terms with it now as i'm older i picked it up again um and and i understand that i won't ever be as good as i was but that's okay as long as i play from the heart It doesn't matter if it's in tune. It doesn't matter if it, you know, it doesn't matter if I can't play what I used to be able to play. It comes from the heart. And therefore, even if it's three notes, just playing one open string for an hour, (laughs) if I'm doing it from the heart, it's from the heart. And you're going to, you're going to feel that. And that's, you know, ultimately how I try to approach everything I do. I have to do it from the heart or it's meaningless.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, and I can tell that from the band, That I when I first met you, you were playing. You're you're playing in Alekine's Gun, Mm -hmm. which is a quasi, I guess, black metal mixed with kind of hardcore vibe, and you're screaming away. It's not. I don't like. Do you do you sing sing as well as do aggressive vocals?
3: Uh, if I have a couple glasses of wine. I mean, I say I, I could carry a tune. I would never yeah. call myself a, a clean, beautiful, clean singer. Um, what can I sing? Sure. Can would I sing? You know, am I embarrassed of it? No. But would I ever call myself knowing some really great singers in the world? No. Vocalists, yes.
2: <laughs> but but uh, the band is—it's an underground sound, right? It, you clearly you weren't making that music because you were like, I'm going to be the next. Lincoln Park. I'm no. uh, uh,
3: <laughs> Obviously not. That's another re- way I lose like thousands of followers. Anytime I post anything about my band, <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially if I'm in corpse pain or something or looking fierce, I don't want to see that. Listen,
2: you are scary <laughs> on stage. Okay. I'm going to say this. You have such a presence. And like I said, that confidence, just that, that, that out, like to the alpha energy that I'll, you kind—it of, kind of reminds me a little bit of Ben from Goat Horror. Like he just has that. <laughs> He's like he'll just rip your head off and throw it into the into the, the the tall brush. And and you have that vibe. Like yo, I better not get too close. She might don't
3: get close. Well, they don't call me the Crusher because I bake nice, you know, cinnamon raisin cookies.
2: <laughs> how did how did that band come about?
3: Um, that was actually. A uh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful story. I had uh, part of why I was bartending again was I had was uh, at a point in my life where I had to start start my life over. It's getting out of a long relationship. Um, which like is what always, what time period? Oh, uh, two thousand nine, two thousand nine. Right on. Uh, getting out of a long relationship uh, where I kind of had lost myself, the things I love to do over the years, and uh, starting with. New, making new friends because, you know, like sometimes when you go through a divorce, people kind of choose sides. So I just like said, all right, whoever's my, you know, whoever's my friend will come to me and that's it. And let me get new place, new job, new life. And uh, I have been missing playing music for a while. And there was no reason for me not to be playing music. And it just so happened that Jeff and Leo who were in Desolate together were looking for a singer. And they heard that I could sing. I was singing in Everybody Gets Hurt before EGH, New York Hardcore Band.
2: Shout um, out Queens.
3: Shout out Queens. Um, <laughs> so they had heard that. And uh, I heard the music and I loved it. It was something different because I had I had done hardcore. I'd been playing hardcore in hardcore bands since I was 15, 16 years old. So it was time to, time to try something new, something that I love. I'd been listening to a lot of black metal, death metal at that time. And... I thought, you know what, let me give it a try. <laughs> it's a challenge, let me give it a try. And and not only did he get me out of retirement it being in a band, but Jeff also got me out of retirement playing an instrument because they needed a bass player. So there you go. So what, I came out of my musical retirement in, in 2009,
2: 2010. What or who is Alekin?
3: <laughs> oh, Alexandra Alekin Aleksandrovich. Uh, he was a grandmaster of chess oh. um, and who discovered this endgame move. Uh, it's it's kind of like a finish him move with a, involving a queen and two rooks.
2: Like a mortal yeah. combat.
3: <laughs> it's a mortal combat. You see that Alec gun? It's over for you, Johnny. That's it. So that's where we got that. Um,
2: so you just tore up the Queen's Gambit, huh?
3: Yeah. <laughs> you tore- oh, I loved it. I loved it. And Leo was working at a chess shop at the time. Um, and I was thinking things that were different, you know, names that were different for a black metal band or whatever metal band, because everything was like black darkness, dark blackness, and vomit, puke, or something different. So, you know, that kind of hit me at the same time, visiting Leo one day, I was like, oh man, chess, like, you know, Wu-Tang Clan of black metal. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but that, that really fit us also because it's a, a move with a queen and two rooks. And at the beginning, I was going to play bass and sing. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be the three of us. Um, but I get too hyped. I cannot do it. I'm like a little kid. Like when they when they're gonna go to Disneyland or something, they're getting on that ride. I get I get too hyped, and I cannot control both things at the same time. I get too excited.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen. I thought the band was great. Your voice is amazing. I'm I'm surprised no one called you when the Arch Enemy job. came oh, we came came, you, came free. You you definitely have have those chops. But like I said, at this time. You had this whole other career, or that was happening, kind of simultaneously that I didn't really know about, mm-hmm. and so I just want to know. So I looked, I looked at the, you know, the, the stuff you're working on. You you had done some television, you had done some mm-hmm. some movies. So between this time, like starting the band, and kind of like the into like the late 2000s or the aughts, um, mm-hmm. what was your approach to your acting career? And like, like was it something that hey, I'm trying to make this my 100% my career, or was it just, I'm just gonna do all the things I like doing and whatever happens, happens.
3: I, I wanted acting to be my number one career. I didn't wanna be in a stinky, dingy bar every day for the rest of my life. That was not my goal. That is not my goal. I didn't go to a conservatory and get a degree and be in debt for 10, 20 years to, you know, uh, to not go anywhere with it. Um, but jobs come when they come. Opportunities come when they are when they're available. So I was lucky enough that I had an agent and I had a manager that would be submitting me for things and roles would come up and I would get to audition. And that's another thing, you know, so many people are rooting for you. Uh, you know, your friends, your family are rooting for you. You want to kind of spare them the pain of the rejections. Mm-hmm. Because they don't realize a lot of times that it might be a hundred no's before you get that one yes. I'm on no, no number 97 for the record. So I got three more no's and I should be, <laughs> I should be getting something again. <laughs> um, they don't realize how many auditions we go on. Um, and I, I think in the beginning, definitely about a hundred auditions before I would get something. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, I don't want, you don't want to break your mom's heart, you know, every time you're like, I'm going in for this, I'm going in for that. And then they're hoping you get it. I I go in for, for really big shows all the time. And I don't want anyone to know. And I don't want anyone to get excited about it. I don't want anyone to blab about it because I don't know if I'm going to get it or not. But what, what that does for me as an actor, you know, going in and doing your auditions is you're planting the seed, you're planting that seed for the next, um, the next project that you're right for. Because so often we go in for things that it, it's just not right. And there's only one time in my life, have I seen a role that I didn't get that I said, that should have been me. Almost every single time I end up seeing the final product, the finished product of whatever movie or television show it was that I didn't get. I'm like, oh, if they wanted her, they didn't want me. <laughs> you know, it's com- they pick someone completely opposite, someone with a different energy or a different look, different age, whatever it is. And then you see why it wasn't you. And it's not because it's something wrong with you. It just wasn't your role. But yeah. your role comes when it's there. That's
2: yeah. What. Well, I, I've noticed a lot of actors who were struggling early on and trying to to get a break. They they write you know, they say, hey, you know what? If no one's gonna cast me in something, let me write my dream project or something I think would fit my personality or fit kind of my style. You know, that's mm-hmm. the the old Rocky story, or mm-hmm. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon with Goodwill Hunting. Uh, do, do you do do you write screenplays or do you try to develop projects for you? Is that some
3: I do not. Uh, I, I don't feel that I'm a writer in that kind of sense, telling stories that way, although I am working on a book, but that's for, that's for a couple of years from now, it's not a, anything to do with, uh, telling some kind of screenplay worthy story. Um, I, I, I would like to either direct or produce in the future that, but that's also in the future. I'm still very much into writing and, um, I'm into acting, sorry, still very much into acting and, um. But I do think that that is a wonderful approach. When work is not coming to you, you create your own work. So for example, um, I didn't create my own work by writing this summer, but instead of, um, you know, sitting home and moping that there there's no shows being shot right now, I took my free time and I was able to teach a summer camp of of kids around the world there and help them work on their Shakespearean monologues to get into their college, you know their college uh, finals, their college auditions. So that to me was something very special. So I created some type of work or allowed myself to, to think outside of the box of, of what else is available to me. I was able to do some Zoom plays, Zooms, Zoom plays, play Zooms, <laughs> Zoom performances. Zoom Zoom formances <laughs> uh, for charity, you know. So that that's been wonderful. I've been I spoke to some schools. I did some some um, you know some speaking to graduates. Some speaking to fir- to freshmen, uh, things like that. So you just have to kind of. Uh, think outside of the box, be creative. You know, there is no box. <laughs> That's the thing is there is no box right now. So if I can't act right now, what resources do I have? What talents, what skills do I have? And how can I use those talents and skills to help other people and still feel that I'm uh, of value in this plant on this earth right now? So I've tried to do that whenever I can.
2: I wanna talk about the the politics of the career side of it and especially for for women. And acting, you know, I, I watched the documentary about Harvey Weinstein and that real gatekeeper kind, kind of culture and how that's lorded over young women specifically and this kind of power dynamic. And there's a few group of people that have the ability to dispense these roles and put you, you know, basically put you on. What, was, what has your experience been navigating that, specifically from a, a New York standpoint? Because you didn't go to Hollywood, but it's not like that doesn't exist in New York. I mean, New York, Harvey Weinstein was a New York guy to start. So,
3: um, It's a very small world. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, this, this industry is very small. Yeah. So uh, everything you do gets around. Good, bad, and ugly. Whether you're an actor, you're a producer, you're a director, everything you do will get around. Your reputation will precede you. Uh, I'm lucky that, uh, I, and it sounds so terrible to say, I'm lucky that I've only had a really, really uncomfortable situation that I that I almost couldn't handle once in my life. Mm. And thankfully, because I'm my New York tough self, I was able to handle it myself. And... Uh, and I should have spoken out then. And when I told the producer about it years later, he was furious with me. He said, why didn't you tell me this right away? We would have removed this person or we would have handled it. Or, you know, there were so many Can options. Can I ask, was it a fellow
2: removed. actor or was it like no. a, someone a, someone above you? It was you? a
3: director. It was director. a director. Okay. A director who overstepped. But it was my last day, I was going home, I was leaving. So I just kind of washed my hands of it and walked away and got out of there by the skin of my teeth, so to speak. I felt like, you know, that classic, you know, that old timey scenario of the secretary and the boss running around the desk. It was one of those situations and it was terrible because it was one of my first, you know, my first real major motion picture experience. So it it was very, mm, it was a bummer. To, it was yeah. a real bummer. Really took all that happiness right, right out of it. It really sucked.
2: But do, um, do, you, do you feel that's something, just being around other actors, hearing stories, and, and knowing what it takes to actually get bigger roles, do you feel that's something that is culturally pervasive, just in, in the big picture sense?
3: I'm sure a lot of people did sleep their way up to the top on purpose. I'm sure a lot of people were harassed and pushed into a corner on their way to the top Uh, and there is that power struggle because you do feel like if I don't make this person like me I'm never going to work again because that is a possibility in this small world. You know if I've you can do something that can upset someone uh, a producer of a theater company let's say and you'll never work for that theater company again so if you're a new york actor who loves theater and that's your bread and butter your lifeline you fuck up that one time that's it for you it's over for you um hi baby oh <laughs> it's our anniversary he bought me some flowers oh Tom
2: said, tell him said tell doc said hi
3: doc says hi
2: you're gonna say hi to the people come on come on thomas i'll get you on the podcast next you're gonna tell me about the paradiddle diddles <laughs>
3: He's he's threatening he's threatening that he's gonna put you on the podcast so you can talk about paradiddle diddles. <laughs> That's
2: right. I'm gonna talk just, about brush strokes.
3: Brush strokes and, uh,
2: <laughs> and ghost notes.
3: And ghost notes. <laughs> he said, no, please, no. He's just been judging a, a drum competition for the last eight hours. I think he doesn't want to talk about drum. I'm I joking. Was-
2: I literally it's funny, I have musicians on here, and it's funny how little we talk about actual
3: yeah music music,
2: music. Uh, you know i, I don't Pickle stuff sometimes you get on it's usually like how'd you get that guitar tone bro that's usually what it is but
3: yeah that, i saved that for messenger you know <laughs>
2: Well, no, i find the life things and the career elements and the emotions of existing in this whole world way more fascinating than tech talk
3: I agree. You no know, it is a small world and also you know in in one sense it's a good thing that it's a small world because when you do do your work and you do do well and you and you give it all people notice. Yeah. They'll notice and they tell each other we talk with each other, we recommend each other. Sometimes there's a role that you see in a play, and you're like, you know who would be good, Doc would be great for that. Here's his number or whatever. We it is a network ultimately for the for yeah, you go. I know you got your card.
2: You let me okay. know, you let me know. They need me, they need to be standing behind a rock with like an AK-47.
3: Perfect, show them guns, <laughs> the gun I, I got you. All right. I, <laughs> I showed my
2: SAG that. card, by the way, if you guys are listening to this, so.
3: I, I will write that down right now. Okay, you're all set. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Talk to the people. There's like a guy, right? It's like one guy. It's like Morgan Freeman as God in, a, in an office. And yeah, he just, exactly. he hands out all the opportunities.
3: <laughs> he hands out the opportunities.
2: Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off.
3: You're not cutting me off. It's your show.
2: Listen, there are people here to listen to you. They hear me talk all the time. So let's actually talk about Orange is the New Black, which was your breakout role. The show really was one of the first hits that Netflix had. So it was this kind of benchmark moment for streaming networks where it literally could have a cultural effect or this kind of buzzworthy, viral, I don't even know what you would call it, but it was just something a lot of people were talking about. And especially women seemed to really identify with the show and it was their favorite show. And when I found out you were on this show, I was like, I was just... Over the moon. It's like, oh my God, that's my friend. I can't. it's just it's so weird when you see you see your friends in TV shows. I still do or
3: that. More. I still do that. <laughs> my friends who have been doing it for 30 years and 40 years or or whatever. I've known them since high school. I still do that. See my friend on a converse, like, oh my God, that's my friend. I text them right away. I still do that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Well, at least hell, at least you still return my message. You know, some people blow up and it's like, yo, you can't find them. <laughs>
3: That's stupid. We, <laughs> can't find them. Um, can't find them. They literally blow up.
2: <laughs> so was, was the audition process for that? You tell about doing hundreds of, of auditions and maybe getting one role. Did it feel different? Did, it, did you have like, oh, I, I got this in the bag? Or was it just a oh, normal a, process?
3: This is a, this is a story for you. Um, <laughs> I got this literally moments from quitting acting forever, this role um I I had been auditioning for another show I've been auditioning for this show the Maria part was not the first part that I auditioned for on the show so I had been auditioning for this show which at the time my manager described as the the show on the computer the computer show so I thought it was a, a webisodes or something like it wasn't even on tv yeah. It was on the computer. Like she, because she didn't know anything about it. We didn't know anything about it except Genji was behind it. And Jen Houston, casting agent, who I see very often, she casts a lot of things that I like or was auditioning for over the years. I love her as, person, as a person, as a casting agent. Um, that's all we knew about it. So we knew about Weeds, the show Weeds that Genji did. Um, and we knew Jen was part of it. But besides that, it was like, it's a show on the computer. Okay. who said that? But that's that's really what it that's all the information we had. We didn't have any information on it yet. So basically. um, I had been auditioning for this other show, which I was beyond psyched for when I'm telling you, like losing sleep over it, uh, memorizing scripts for the audition, being, you know, being off books and getting called back and called back again. Then I auditioned for the computer show for one part. I auditioned for several different roles, but whatever. My focus was on this major network opposite one of my favorite actors, Uh, huge, big part, a series regular. I mean, it's like ding, 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 everything that you want, that you've been working for. This is it. (laughs) I had it. And they'd called me back. They called me back again. They called me back again. Then I had the director, the producers. It was like me and one other girl. I was like, oh my God, like this is it. I saw myself already on this show. I had the outfits ready. I mean, I, I was there. As far as I was concerned, I had, I got that part. Um, you know, like, that's great. We want to see you next week. And I was like, yes. Oh
0: my God, I got it.
3: And I come back next week and the room is full of bitches. <laughs> of all the other people that they had tried to, like, they wanted to try something different. So they completely changed the character. They were oh, then it went from one ethnicity to all ethnicities. So there's like six foot tall Swedish models there and like you know big African beautiful, gorgeous ladies there and all Asian I mean it was everybody was there and they were like, we're all going for the same part now. It's like yes, like they had just at the last minute had a change of heart of what they wanted to do with the role. And then it wasn't like from 20 years old to 50 years old. so, Usually you're competing kind of in your own age range, your own kind of look. Now it's like everyone, every out-of-work actress was there. (laughs) Pretty pretty much.
2: I heard auditions, you go on auditions and it's usually 10 people that all look like you.
3: Yes, you're like, I'm so special, I'm so unique. There's no one in the world like me. And then you open the door and you're like, I need to talk to my dad about some things because I think that's my sister. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually, you know, you realize that you are very extremely replaceable at those moments we're all a type yeah we're all a type and there's nothing wrong with that but when you see like this rainbow thing like you were like oh they so all of this extra work all this lack of sleep not eating memorizing you know nerves and 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 nausea and (laughs) nightmares was for nothing because ultimately it didn't even matter and at the end I didn't get it and I was like do I really want to live like this for the rest of my life after this was my 99th rejection. And I, I, I said, no, I, maybe I want to, you know, have a more stable future. Maybe I can, you know, at that point, I got a letter from Microsoft and they'd sent me this letter says it's never too late to be a Microsoft tech. And I was like, you know what, maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's time (laughs) to go into that, you know, Microsoft customer service, you know, technical programming program and have health care and have a steady paycheck. Sounds reliable. Vacation days. And I can still play in a band. Mm-hmm. I can still do playing. Weekend on the- Warrior. I can do my, yes, of course, nothing wrong with that. That's awesome if you can do it. If you have the time and energy to do it, that's awesome. And I can still do my community theater. I can still do student films. I can still do whatever little things. Doesn't mean it's over, it's just a change. So I call my manager up and I say, you know, I, I, uh, I think that I don't want to do any more auditions for the rest of the year because I really, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And she said, that's so funny because I was just going to call you. Do you remember that computer show, you know, about the girls in jail? Well, Jen wants to see you again. I'm like, again? This was going to be my fourth time going in for a new character. She's like, yeah, she really wants to see you tomorrow, Jess. She loves you. You know, I understand you're feeling frustrated. Let's just make this the last audition. It's like, oh fine for Jen, because out of respect for your colleagues, out of respect for the the people that you know you work with, you should out of respect you go. Uh if you can. So I went. Um, or I got the details for it. Uh so she says to me, okay, great. So this is in prison, you know, so you're gonna be a prisoner. I was like, duh. What else would I be like a lawyer, like someone that went to school or something? I doubted that. I was already so negative minded. My my, my brain was already only seeing negativity. Right. Um, And she says uh, her name is uh, she's a Latina. Like, hold on. Her name is Maria. I was like, whoa, what a stretch. Uh, (laughs) And she's like, and she's pregnant very very pregnant in jail i was like great maria pregnant in jail my mom's gonna be so proud i said is the baby a drug dealer's baby and she goes we don't know that yet uh, <laughs> funny enough uh spoiler alert no uh so she says you know tomorrow at at, at at 12 30 or whatever let's do it at, she wants to see at twelve thirty. I was like can we make it 12 o'clock because I have an appointment at Sephora for my birthday makeover oh, and snap. I do not want to miss it thank you <laughs> that's that's how much doing another stupid audition meant to me or how little it meant to me at that point I just didn't care at all yeah. I don't feel like it that helps lacking. you
2: sometimes when you don't care
3: that's exactly what happened because I went in the next day and Jen was late because there was traffic. So I needed to be at Sephora at 1230 and she rolls in at 1215. And I just gave her a look and someone who is my friend, who I love, who I respect who is also an opportunity to give me a job. I just gave her this look and I came in and
2: you and
0: put I that attitude in. The
3: lines and I started talking to her and I was like, "What? All right. This, my name is Jessica. We're here. Let's do the part. Okay, thank you. We were supposed to be finished by 12.30. And she's, and there was Maria. <laughs> and I got a call the next day and I started work on Friday.
2: Have you ever seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey yeah. Jr.? Uh-huh. In the, the scene, he's a robber who ends up, he's running away from the, the scene and he runs into a, an audition. Yeah. And he's like, and he doesn't realize it's an audition and he's just running away. It's just one of my favorite scenes where he just, because he's literally living in the moment of what happened. They're like, that's brilliant. And they give him a part. It's anyway, off topic. I think but-
3: that's essentially what happened though. <laughs> I just didn't give a fuck. And I was mad that she was late and I was mad that I was going to get rejected again tomorrow. I don't want to hear it. And I was like done. I was done yesterday, but here I am today. And that's, Essentially, how Maria was more attitude, her attitude came from just that day—the frustration.
2: How uh, soon between that did did you get the r- real thumbs up that you had the role? The next day. Next day, did next you? Day. So uh, at that point, you were just doing sides, or did you have like a full script? When did you get a full script of like the pilot? It
3: was just sides, and I yeah. didn't get a full script until maybe the third season. Most for the most part, unless you're a series regular. Uh, you don't, you
2: just you get, get your
3: get scenes, you just get your scenes. Correct. So um, unless it's, uh, for example, when I had a flashback episode, when it's your backstory, then you'll get the entire script for the, for the most part, or you can request it. But because we are, we were the hugest cast in television, we were larger than game of Thrones. Uh, there's too many, too many ways that those, those can leak. episodes could leak, could be leaked. Yeah. Um, Still, so you kind of, and also if you're only in one scene, you don't need 900 pages, you know, like you don't need that shit. doesn't yeah. apply.
2: Well, the reason why so I like asked-
3: Focus on your, focus on your job.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the reason why I asked was because I just wanted to know if you had an understanding that it was a special piece of work beforehand. None of us did. Yeah. No,
3: none of us did. Because it also, it, how do you say, it uh, blossoms as it goes. Uh, Genji, the creator, already had her- her vision, which she said it was going to be that Trojan horse, that that, you know, middle class, perfect waspy white lady was going to be that Trojan horse for all these underbelly stories that we ignore in this country, and the world, which is very smart. And I know that something that I auditioned for with that Maria script, or maybe it was another character before, was a joke that was used two seasons later. So she had already a vision of how she wanted things to turn out. But also they are smart. Our writers are observant. Our writers are are creative and they are also taking note of what's happening in the world. Things change. So they were also working with our own personal dynamics within the show because they saw that certain people in the cast had special dynamics. Certain people didn't get along. Certain people really got along. Certain people, you know, had this comedic, you know, banter. Certain people had this great bitchy energy towards each other and they used that. Yeah. They used our our personal energy and threw that into the show as well, which I think is something that that really made it great. And it was almost like because they were so in tune with this the criminal justice system, they were almost like predicting things that were gonna happen. Because we would shoot an episode and then we would turn on the news, and it's something that happened. It's like we just shot that yesterday. All you gotta do is we-
2: is read Florida newspapers and you get all the best. Yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly.
2: Crime, ridiculousness.
3: <laughs> so like when we all broke out of there's this, oh sorry, spoiler alert, but it's been out for years. Like when we all break out of prison, you know, we were shooting that. We finished shooting that episode, and two days later, people had broken out, like just walked out of prison, like we did. So it, it was it was getting eerie at some point. Um, but but I'm so happy that eventually these stories turned very personal, they turned very humane. They they gave humanity to these stats and figures that we hear all the time. We never, we never put these numbers to faces or or to someone that we might actually know. So it was really wonderful to be a part of that.
2: So what was the it like for you going from, you know, being someone who was blue collar in an artistic sense, right? You're you're working on plays, you're working on this and you're doing your band and all of a sudden you kind of get this broad worldwide platform where all of a sudden everyone's seeing you what what was that kind of getting a that lift into fame seemingly overnight what how did you kind of process that did people treat you differently was it what what was that like for you
3: great question great question as far as the work is concerned nothing changed because i'm Roll up my sleeves type person and because I studied. Well, I mean, what like, your personal life like? How did, did um, like
2: old friends oh, treat you? Life. To, yeah.
3: Uh, I think the real friends were proud, and the not real friends were not. Were upset. They were hating. That, that, you haters. Meme, you know that meme that it's like people will see you walk on water and they say because it's you can't because you can't swim. That's exactly what was happening. It's mm. like oh, she only got that because of. This she only got that because of
2: (laughs) were they saying that to you or they saying it behind your back
3: uh mostly behind your back which is how haters communicate in their (laughs) with their their secretaries and whatnot mostly behind your back or behind my back Um, did did uh proud in public proud to your face or happy to your face but then talking shit all the time but, I mean, it's pretty, you you know already before they open their mouths who they are. You know who your real friends are. You know who your real family is. You know who has good intentions for you, who, who wants you to succeed. And you know who's jealous. Even if they're not even an actor, they're just mad at you for no reason. They were mad at you before that. Now they actually have a reason.
2: Did having this new exposure to, I guess, celebrity... I don't know that was like inner, inner circles, you know, you know, being exposed to more famous people And these, did it get weird? Like, honestly, you're like, Oh, I'm hanging out with, you know, Brad Pitt yeah. or I'm doing, was that, did, did that change well, because, at
3: all? First of all, we're New Yorkers and we've been in the club scene and bar scene, whatever nightclub scene forever. Celebrities, no big shit for us. You know, we see them on the subway. You're like, Oh, there, you know, there's, I don't know, Jennifer Lawrence on the F train. You don't care. Yeah. That's number one. And also, because you're an actor you understand they're actors too sure you might have your moments where you're like omg what i was very thankful for was that i was able to talk to uh two actors that that were a big influence on me when i was young when i was younger who spoke at my college and i was able to thank them personally at the screen actors guild awards so that for me was like a full circle and i was able to thank meryl streep as well for for all the inspiration i have uh framed picture of her in my bathroom that I see in the mirror, you know, it's what would Meryl Streep do?
2: She's the GOAT. You know,
3: so I was able, I was able to thank my heroes. That's something that I could have only gotten if I'd gotten to that level. And I was thanking them at the Screen Actor Guild Award as a she- nominee. So that that was huge, of course. Is that my mom? No. I,
2: know, I have it on the <laughs> computer. So they're calling here. Dan, don't be calling me. Um,
3: well, I mean, they we're not live, how would they know?
2: No, that's all right. I have my phone on like don't deserve but they got me through the computer so it sounds like you were able to stay grounded
3: of course i still had bills to pay i wasn't making a billion dollars from the first day some of us were still making barely making you know your ends meet because now you're in this show and you can't have your both your real job and the show so now you have to kind of choose but you weren't working every day let's say So you had to cut some of your hours now of the job that pays your bills, so that you could do this job. It was a real struggle the first year or two for a lot for most of us. Um, If you weren't a a series regular at that time or, or a guest star at that time, if you were just starting, it was really really tough. It was actually tougher than the year before because now you're like, well, I can't bartend this Friday night, the big money night. You know, I can't do that office job this week, or I'm going to get, I might get fired, you know? it's so, funny. So it, it that... a, again, it was a sacrifice, a bigger sacrifice for a show that was going to be on the computer. That's all we know.
2: Well, no, it's, it's amazing how much that mirrors my experience with Bad Wolves where mm-hmm. zombie hits, it's everywhere. It goes number one. Everyone's talking about the band There all these opportunities are showing up, but we were still a brand new band. So we mm-hmm. still, even though we were getting, paid on tour when we first started it wasn't a lot of money we were in a van like we were so we were getting all this hype and getting all this oh my god it's crazy but we still had to go out and build a career Mm -hmm. you know so
3: exactly the same
2: it's it's that distance between especially in the social media area era of getting all this attention and people thinking you're this but it's like no there's a lot of nitty-gritty
3: We're in like number one show show in the world wearing a $5,000 dress trying to split a cab. (laughs) All right. Let's put it into perspective. You know that you you, people are lending you the million dollars of jewelry and whatever. And you're like splitting hotel rooms to travel somewhere with with your castmates or splitting a cab or or (laughs) go, you know people had no, no idea because also we have that facade that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that red carpet facade or those numbers make you think like, Oh, because you have half a million followers, you're, you're rich. Fame is not equal financial stability. Fame does not equal talent. Fame does not equal success. Fame is a type of success, but it's not a long lasting success. Is it, is it where you're at right now, which it's variable. It varies depending on what you do.
2: I think fame uh, is a tool.
3: It's absolutely a tool and you should use your tool for good and not yeah. evil.
2: Well, I think the for some people the fame itself is kind of a, you know, kind of a concentric circle like it that it is part of a system of circular validation that that allows them to kind of fill some hole. And if and if you're the type of person where that's where you're kind of filling that hole it's it's kind of never ending right like it always reminds me of of michael jackson when he would like go out and put his baby out there because he kind of needed that validation yeah and if
3: your if your motivation is fame there's you have to look deep (laughs) deeply inside yourself and figure out why? What is your need for validation? Your need for approval? Your fear of abandonment? Your trust issues? Usually, something along those lines, uh, because uh, there, there is no amount of applause. There's no dollar amount. There's no amount of likes. There's no amount of followers that will ever make you feel complete. Your com- your your complete self needs to be fixed and mended by you, firstly, is at the end of the day when the phone is off and you're by yourself and you're still in pain, nothing was accomplished. So this like never-ending carrot, that carrot hanging in front of you, like if I get a little more followers, if I get some more likes on this picture, that's what you see these girls, they start off so cute. And now they are like in two pasties and a whatever, like it's just this never-ending chase for, for more and more and more likes thinking that that's going to make you feel better it doesn't it's one of the you know in buddhism it's one of the eight worldly dharmas the 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 feelings that keep us bound to suffering earthly bound one of them is fame the the want and desire for fame as and the fear of being anonymous and the irony is that there's someone who is anonymous who would not trade one second of their life for yours because they are complete and content and happy and whole and full of love and at peace, but we're afraid of that. We want to be fit. We want people to know us, and that's that. That's the cause of suffering. In this, especially in the earth, earthly suffering.
2: Yeah, I, listen. I think you, that was all wisdom right there, and I'm I'm, I'm trying to absorb it. And I, I feel you, and I I I agree with you. And I think, for me, the way I view it is the more famous I get, it allows me to, like I said, it's a tool that allows me to, it's easier to maybe get a record deal or maybe create more opportunities or what have you. And it's all about utilizing help that.
3: Friends, help other people, raise awareness for charities that mm-hmm. you like. I mean, it's wonderful. Famous are yeah. awesome. Yeah, In that me. sense, that you can use it for other people, bring yeah. them up. Come on.
2: Well, I mean, Joe Rogan explains it. He says, Fame is just for me, it's just like a bunch of people being really nice to me. Mm. You know, for him, I guess maybe you can be infamous and maybe it's a lot of people not being nice to you. Um, Let's take the subject a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to keep it too much longer. You joined, or actually, maybe you can kind of fill me in the capacity with this. As far as I know, you joined the band Brujeria a few years ago as a secondary vocalist. Is Is this not public?
3: Yeah, it's extremely public. Okay, I'm I don't sure. know. You made a face like mind boggling <laughs> moment. Yes.
2: So how did how did you end up joining Bru- Brujeria?
3: <laughs> well, I've been a long time fan of Brujeria. Actually, I think I first heard Brujeria, maybe I was I wanna say 70, 16, 17. And it was like a tape of a tape of a tape of a tape. I mean, it was already nasty, grimy sounding. And I'll never forget like how I absolutely believed that this was true. Like these, these extra violent uh, lyrics and all that. And I was quite afraid. Um, But Rudy over the years became one of my favorite, favorite bands. Um, And I'd seen them every time they were in New York and a couple of years ago, let's see, I think I want to say 16 or 17 Monty Pittman. Oh no, 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 wait, hold on. Wrong name. Hold on one second. Sorry. That's, why we, that's why we have
2: editing. It's great.
3: Okay, let's start over. Open the beer. Thank you. <laughs> oh, is, to it, is, be it, quiet.
2: is it beer o'clock? No, you open those it's, beers.
3: It's ten fifteen.
2: Keeping you it's late. My apologies. It's Friday it's okay.
3: night. Uh, it's it's Friday night. Exactly. We got we got flowers. We got champagne. We got food ready. We got. It's ready for anniversary. Living the life. Living the life. Anyway, let's get back to that. A couple of years ago, then Monty Connor uh, introduced the other Monty. me. The The other Monty. I was like, Monty, that's not right. Mon- but I do have a story about Monty Pittman. But Monty Connor introduced me uh, to Brujo. Um, and he's like, I heard you sing, you know. <laughs> like yeah. He didn't know about the show. He didn't know. He doesn't watch no TV. He's He's a character like none other. And he's amazing. Anyway, um, they had a character in the band called La Bruja, and she kind of uh, went MIA. And they had just written some songs that were requiring that female energy, so to speak. And Bruja, knowing that I w- was a singer already, um, asked if I would just step in. And I stepped in, and I stayed stepping in. <laughs> and so we, how did so created our my own. created my own character yeah uh who's not uh, the previous brujas have been a little more sexy a little more cute my bruja was a little more badass you know ass kicking because i remember asking brujo you know i i came to to uh irving plaza they had been on tour and I was going to jump, jump on the tour, but the tour bus broke down. They were traveling in vans. It was brujería. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And I remember showing up with a whole suitcase of stuff and thinking about previous brujas that are like the charo of death metal, you know, kind of thing, and bringing little cute outfits and skirts. And he's like, nah, man, cover up. I want you to be covered up. I want, I want you to just be badass, a badass bitch, you know, basically like different energy and that to me was a huge moment very impressive and uh and we did a sound check half a song and uh then i did uh, the show and that was it that was i just got thrown in the deep end no rehearsal half a sound check meet everybody that day and just go on stage
2: well their history is so crazy because they've had so many band members and it seems almost like a I don't know, some kind of wild, heavy metal Mexican circus of <laughs> insanity. I got to see a show before you were in the band,
0: uh-huh.
2: I believe in L.A., I think when the Key Club was still open, and I think Jeff Walker from Carcass was playing with the band at the time, and uh, I think it was Shane playing from Napalm. I can't even remember, but it just seemed like there's, there's so many iterations
0: there's many of... members, yeah. But the craziest.
2: But the craziest thing about the band is the live show is just, it's just the crowd because it's it's L.A. So it's like all the Mexicans come and they just represent so hard. So did you do a show in Mexico?
3: Oh yes, we did and, many shows in Mexico. And how
2: crazy is that shit?
3: It's like while well, we did that Corona Hell and Heaven Fest, uh, at the same time Gojira was playing. And it was like a very humbling moment uh, to see the crowd running from the Gojira station <laughs> towards us. And it was just a sea of people. I think it was like 500,000 people or something, 250. 000, I don't remember. Good How lord. Many, we can, we can re- research that. A good number, amount of people, um, a sea of people and screaming back at you so loud you can't even hear it. I mean, it's one thing in a stadium, it's one thing when you're, I don't know, it was just, some, it's something else because it's like something that's so profoundly Mexican when you're in Mexico on on El Cinco de Mayo, um, <laughs> you know, with your friends on a main stage in a festival, Deep Purple's going on next. I mean, like, what the fuck? It was completely mind blowing, but. All the shows in Mexico, whether they are a big club or medium-sized club or even a small little venue—I mean, even the smallest venue—it's completely packed. Um, people are having the time of their lives. They are singing along. They're screaming along. And some of them, some of them, really, you know, are into the. The story of Brujeria and ask us to bless their children, you know. It, it's sort of like, say, is this some
2: Satan shit, some fucking black magic? What's going on there?
3: I, <laughs> the well, they can believe whatever they want to, but they, it doesn't bother them if they're asking us to bless their children, <clears throat> obviously. Um, or they just want to touch you, like they 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 really want that energy from you. Um, they take good care of us, like when when we go someplace, we'll end up going to like a family's house, and they cook a cook this feast for I mean it's 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 insane it's like no other band experience and we've both been on tours and circuits and you know festival all that this is this is some next level like hard to describe next level hospitality when you have like grandmas and moms and titis coming out like serving you and taking care of you and, you know, reading your palm and all this shit. It's insane. It's really cool.
2: No, I just, I just love that about you because you will do things that have a certain level of notoriety that seems like it's in this world. Like if you go on your social media, media and you'll see you on a red carpet, and then you also do the stuff that's so just underground and true and of of a certain scene that almost I wonder you know it's like when we were hanging out in New York I didn't know you were acting but I'd imagine the people that are your acting friends would pro- are probably way more surprised and taken aback if they find out if they hear you singing in, in one of your bands they're like what the
0: hell are and you like
3: you like heavy metal like Kiss I'm like yep <laughs> that's exactly you listen to it. Godsmack yeah Godsmack I love them. that's kind of their impression of i guess what they think what they think i do i don't know well
2: well it just shows me how true to yourself you are and you're not trying to fit into a clean box of this is how a person is or this is where i belong and it's it shows a versatility of spirit and kind of a freeness i suppose
3: yeah, I, I'm not locked into who I think I am. I, I just, as I said earlier, I do things from the heart and I have kind of this one rule, like if you were to go in a time machine right now and talk to your 13-year-old self, 14-year-old self, what would they think of you? You know, what would they think? So if you have the opportunity to to stand in or sit in one day, one of your favorite bands, as grimy as it may be, and it may ruin your... Hollywood reputation, you know, what is 15 year old you gonna say? Like, of course, you have to fucking do it. You have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do it for 15 year old you who can't believe, who wouldn't be- Like, if you go back, you know, back in time and tap yourself on the shoulder and say, you're in brujeria, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you won't believe it. So I try to like constantly do things that younger me would be astounded by if the opportunity arises itself you know arises for me to do that I think you have to do it you have to do things that 15 year old you wouldn't even dream of or dreamt of but didn't think was possible and do things that really scare the shit out of you yeah. when you're confronted with, with something even within your own artistic field whether it's a play that you're the lead I did a one-woman show scared the shit I of not I had panic attacks I almost I almost quit. Yeah, but I had to do it. It's one of the proudest things I ever did. You know, challenging yourself. So those, I think, those are two kind of consistent things that I keep. As far as how I try to go about my career or artistic endeavors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: I think it's a great way to think about it, a great way to put it because the key word there is dream, and there's a certain wonder. I think that comes from being a child or a young person and a sense of optimism that people lose because life just hands you a lot of haymakers. And so that can make people lose that sense of possibility. And so I just think it's, it's wonderful that you're still able to tap into that and keep that as like a way to, as I call a personal kind of true North, right? Something generally guiding you and it's you know and I don't I don't know about you but for me it's not necessarily an intellectual thing it is a gut thing
3: Stop it! I'm almost finished <laughs> he's
2: so speaking of, of, of Thomas I'm sure like when you do a lot of interviews especially with metal people they probably ask a lot of questions about that uh I don't really it's not really that interesting to me you guys are couples fine whatever I'm not gonna kiss your ass because you're important he's important whatever it's fine what I oh, would I ask know. you about <laughs> You guys are great, but I just don't, I think that's been, it gets a lot of press, but it's not necessarily that. enough, Yeah. But what I want to ask you about is living, moving to Sweden and how you've enjoyed that and how, I mean, obviously very different than New York. What What's that experience been like?
3: Not really in Stockholm, not so different, except you can't get bacon, egg and cheese, you know, kind of situations, the little things. No bagels, Some things bitch. like that. It's like a food thing. That's the only thing that's different. No deli. Yeah,
1: bagels, God
2: damn it. <laughs> Eat black pudding for breakfast?
3: No, no, no. Um, for the most part, I—I I mean, we've been going back and forth for six years well, five years at this point. point—and um, then Corona hit, and I thought that I was going to jump on a plane, be here for a couple of weeks, so that we, you know, we could be together and figure out what to do. And then I'd come home, whatever. So I packed my bag kind of in 30 minutes, got on a plane and little did I know I would never go home again. <laughs> That's pretty much. And I've been here since March 17, March 18th. Um, and at this point, I'm a resident of Sweden. I take, I'm fully protected by Swedish government, Swedish healthcare. They're lovely. Um, they helped me with my immigrant resources. It's been quite a pleasant experience. Um, Quite a pleasant transition. I I can't, you know, lie. It's been quite lovely. How about the weather?
2: Are you, can uh, you, are you,
3: mm-hmm.
2: is it okay? Can, can your Dominican summer. skin handle the cold and the breeze and the.
3: I'm from New York, man. Yeah, it's winter, true. Worse, winter is worse in New York than in Stockholm. Damn. Much, much milder here. Even though it's like 18 degrees right now, it's like a, it's like a dry 18. So you never really get cold. Mm. Uh, the weirdest change is uh, just especially when you go up north to visit family, the uh, in the sun, in the summer, the sun never going down in the winter, the sun never coming up. Uh, it's we still get that down here in Stockholm, but not as bad. Uh, but for the most part, I'm just very thankful that I'm here, uh, that we can be together, that we haven't been separated because all the borders are shut. Yeah. You know, so I'm thankful that I just made that decision to go um, and didn't overthink it. Um, and and i don't know i lost my train of thought i mean and also the life the lifestyle that we live we are you know we work a lot from home mm-hmm. i work a lot from home he works a lot from they have a studio of his studio um and now auditions for example are all zoom like i was trapped earlier in an audition situation auditions are all zoom online um Interviews are all this. So not that much has changed. Only like my location has changed, but my life hasn't changed that much. No not no more different than if I were in New York right now. Yeah. I'd still be at home, trapped at home, doing auditions by Zoom. And at least I'm not alone.
2: Yeah. Well I, well, I think that's great. And it's, uh, you know, I've always dreamed, you know, little things like, oh, it'd be cool to move to London. It'd be cool to move to the yeah. Netherlands or something like that. Yeah, it's- it is. You know, it's like a very—I don't know—adventurous life. It seems like it's—it's
3: it's the same shit, man. Well, I it's know, but it's—it
2: it is it's the same. You—you you do know that most people die within like ten miles from where they were born, right? In America. Yeah, of
0: course. So it's, go.
2: so it's so it's—it's rare enough for someone like me to move from New Jersey to L.A. It's even right. more rare to someone That's to a move, big move to. Though.
3: I feel that New York to LA is a bigger difference than New York to Stockholm.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
3: Totally different culture. It's a totally different kind of people. It's a totally different lifestyle. Stockholm is a major metropolitan, dark, dirty, grimy old city. And you got to drive everywhere in LA. You got to be up early. got to do... That. I'm not up early. Run, 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 run.
0: <laughs> well...
3: Y'all like, cute, wear your jacket over your shoulders.
2: Listen, I was in Stockholm for one day and I've never seen better dressed men in my life. I felt like I was homeless comparatively to how well. well.
3: It depends what part of Stockholm you're in. It's just like New York. It's like oh. if you're in the Upper East Side or if you're in the village or if we're like in Williamsburg. Well, not really Williamsburg. We're in like Cobble Hill of <laughs> Brooklyn Heights. No, Cobble Hill of Sweden. That's where we live. We live in like the Red Hook of Sweden.
2: Well, that's great. Well, listen, yeah. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program. You know, we've oh, been talking no. a lot about doing this and it's just, I just, I appreciate you always staying in touch. I admire your work ethic and your attitude and everything you've done because you, you know, you inspire me. Like I haven't done a lot of acting, but I'm you, people like you show me, if you think you can do things, if you're, if you work at it, if you believe in yourself, you can you don't have to limit yourself by the world's limitations or other people's limitations,
0: you know?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so glad we sat down. You've had crazy couple of months. I'm glad to see you feeling better. You got your spot now. Like I love you. I support you.
2: That's who I got I'm
3: Proud of you. Man, <laughs> damn, is proud of you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank and I look you. forward to, uh, you know, Sitting at a festival table again at lunch and and chilling, having a nice talk again face-to-face. But if not, this will do for now. But I'm really proud of you. And I can't wait to see what this year brings because it's already been a doozy.
2: Yes, yes. Well, happy anniversary. Enjoy your evening. And I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
3: Yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. And you down all of your savior. You are my flesh and bone Resilience to sadness you and- know.
2: So that track was entitled Par Chiwa, AKA certain death. I don't know what language that is, but it sounds, sounds pretty tough. And that was from Jessica's band, Alakin's gun. And they put out an EP in 2020, which was entitled year of the Lazarus. And as you can tell, that is a doozy of a track. And she has a doozy of a voice. Holy crap. I'm you, man, rip your fucking head off. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I, as you can tell, for the most part, I did not overstate how impressive of a human being she is, and I just thought it was incredible. It's great to to catch up and really just, I don't know, just hearing her perspective on life in so many different ways, whether that's her approach to art or her craft or her kind of spirituality, the way she absorbs that uh, through Buddhism you know, I just, I just found it fascinating, and it's it's just very exciting to be around and speak with such positive and creative human beings. It's, it's exciting, so all thanks to her. And if uh, I didn't make direct allusions to it as far as explaining to it, but her boyfriend is Thomas Hake, the drummer from Meshuggah, and she lives in Sweden with him. And, you know, as I kind of mentioned in the show, I didn't really want to make too big of a thing about that because, I don't know. I I just feel like that stuff gets a little bit overblown in the, in the press and it's just they're in a relationship. That's it. It's not much to talk about, but Thomas, you want to be on the show? i at your boy. Okay. You know how to reach me now. You know, you know, we'll talk. We won't talk about no drones. We'll just talk about beards and beer or whatever. All right. But yeah, guys, I'm in a work mode vibe right now. Your boy's busy. All right. I'm like, editing this and then i'm down i'm uploading some videos and i'm, I'm just I, I got a lot going on i'm listening to audition tapes it's craziness right now it's crazy in the street but i'm in i'm in a good spirit and positive spirit and i think that's i don't know i'm it's been so like up and down you know me i'm the, i'm a libra so i always have to find that equilibrium and i, and I feel like i've i've found it. Uh, but it's all about just kind of putting all of those uh, kind of little formations of time and effort into where you just need to be. So I'm 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 working on it, and I'm trying to just put all that, take that positive energy and put it out there. And you know, I feel like I'm being a little vague and a little like bullshitty right now. So my, my apologies, because there's a lot of things I can't get into right now. So maybe maybe down the line, but. I'm feeling good, okay? And that's all that matters. We're one day at a time, one step. I just came up with that phrase, by the way, one day at a time. No one even came up with that to me right now. So you're welcome. You can use that. You can put it on, make a bumper sticker. But yeah, I think that's, you know, I think I'm just out of gas, all right? I've been working hard and I got nothing to say right now. And that's okay because I talk a lot on this fucking show. So I'm going to go kiss my own ass and fuck myself. Now, I just had a long day, but all right, this show has really gone off the rails. You guys are still listening now. You should definitely get your money back. Oh, I forgot. It's free. It's free. It's free. So I can just do whatever I can have. I can just run this shit off in the rails and and you can, just, you probably turned it off by now, but you're still listening. I don't know what to say. This is, that might be more about you than it says about me. So you have to t- tell that to your therapist. All right. Figure that shit out. All right. I got a Lost Boys poster. Got to count the wins. Mama's out.
1: every Monday.